You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, I want to add my welcome. I'm Eric Barton and apparently am full of the spirit, Mike. I see what I did there. Thank you for that. Welcome and lead in. I am delighted that you are here. I am so thankful to be here, and I'm thankful that last Sunday morning, one of our deacons, Chris Foreman, led us through the teaching of the Word in 1 Samuel 18 and 19, and we're going to pick up from where Chris left off. And so if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. And while you're turning there, uh, here's a question. And I think that as we study the life of David, this, this warrior, poet, shepherd, and king, as we study him, perhaps the question that I think I encounter either overtly and directly or subtly and indirectly more than any other goes something like this. Does God really care? I hear this from unbelievers those who are struggling with the existence of a God at all, if there is a God, does he really care? Is he distant? Is he disinterested? And even for those who call themselves believers, who call themselves fully devoted followers of Christ, I think the thing that I encounter more than any other notion in the life of a believer is the whole, yeah, but really, mindset. Like, I, I know that God's good, and he's great, and he's glorious, and he's gracious, and every other word that starts with G, I get it, but, yeah, I got my real, everyday, practical, functional, moment-by-moment, grinded-out life. Does God really care? And I'll tell you, this, this question manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. I see people who have all kinds of heartaches and pains in their life simply because of their answer to that question. People feel ignored or unlovely. And so they work as hard as they can to manufacture, to produce some loveliness. People feel small and marginalized because they feel like nobody who matters really cares about them. And so they push themselves to the middle and they experience all sorts of of fear and uncertainty and doubt. Excuse me. They, They feel Like nobody acknowledges or accepts them. And so they will do all sorts of things to try and achieve someone they think matters, caring for them, acknowledging them, accepting them. So that's really the question. Does God really care? And I believe that our text this morning is an emphatic yes, which leads us really to the big idea, sort of the takeaway, the walkout wisdom for the morning. It's very simple. It's two words. It's two syllables. And it goes like this. God cares. But I mean, really. I mean, he literally, seriously, legitimately, for real, y'all, cares. And not just in the macro sense, like, yeah, one day it's going to be nice and there's going to be, you know, bright, sunny days. And No, no, I mean, like, here and now, he cares. So, 1 Samuel chapter 20, I want to remind you where we are in our series on the life of David, this study of King David. And I want to remind us that the stories, the narratives in the Old Testament of David, we must not receive them 
as fables or as morals. Yes, there are biblical principles that apply to all people at all times and all places, but we cannot treat the Old Testament or the New Testament for that matter as a stack of fables and morals because if we do that, we'll toss it aside as the powerless tome that it is. No, the, the Old Testament stories with guys like David are all pointing us to the one day future anointed king that God will himself send. And we know that because Jesus himself says so. Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, as he's walking along the road to Emmaus with two discouraged disciples who are grieving his death, Jesus says, don't you get it? All of the prophets, all of the law, everything is about me. And starting from the very beginning, he told them how everything in their scripture, the Old Testament, was pointing to him, how it was concerning himself. So this is what we're gonna pick up on. Now, I'm just in the interest of time, gonna sort of bring us up to speed and sort of hit some of the high points of these narratives. We talked about last week how Saul has been rejected as king of Israel by God. Mr. Tall, dark, and handsome has been rejected by God. David has been anointed king by God over Israel. And yet, he's still a seemingly unimportant shepherd. Been anointed by Samuel. That was kind of weird. This old guy walks in with a horn and dumps oil on his head. And then, like, nothing changes. He just goes back to tending sheep, except for one day, he's running cheese to his brothers, because, you know, that's just kind of your typical day. And there's a big giant who is cursing the God of Israel. He kills the aforementioned giant because of the blasphemy of the God of Israel. Sticks a stone in his head because the punishment for blasphemy is stoning. And then he cuts off his head. And then they start to write these little one-hit wonders about David. Saul's killed his thousands. David's killed his ten thousands. We think that about the time that Chris talked through last week in chapters 18 and 19 is David befriends Jonathan, the son of King Saul, marries Michal, the daughter of King Saul, and is repeatedly uh, the target for Saul's spear. That David's probably about 20 years old when all that's going on. David has to go through all these trials, and finally, David's about to go into exile. And chapters 21 through 26 are all about David's exile. But in chapter 20, we get this really fascinating narrative, and a gajillion sermons have been preached on 1 Samuel 20, the story between Jonathan and David, and how it's all about friendship, except that it isn't. There are some helpful biblical principles about companionship and friendship, in 1 Samuel 20, but that's not what this passage is about. 1 Samuel 20 is demonstrating what it looks like to abdicate one's throne to the rightful heir. By all appearances, the world would look at Jonathan, the son of King Saul, and say, you're the heir apparent. You deserve, you are entitled to, you should be the next king. But Jonathan approaches the Lord's anointed, the Mashiach, the one who God says is king, and he says, I give you everything. Here's my, here's my authority, here's my defense, here's my provision, here's my identity, it's you. You come from nothing, as far as I can tell, it doesn't matter. I bow to you. By the way, it's one of the clearest, most beautiful pictures of the receipt of the gospel in the Old Testament. Jonathan is showing us what it looks like to abdicate the throne. And because Jonathan demonstrates what it looks like to abdicate the throne to the rightful king, he assists David and sends him away so that Saul can't kill him. And so at the end of chapter 20, David departs. 
This is sort of like a, uh, if you'll allow it, it's sort of like a last supper. Jonathan and David have this very sweet, tender moment where they realize they're not gonna see each other again. David has to flee to the Gentiles. And Jonathan goes into the city, which leads us now finally to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob. Now, let me give a little bit of quick geographical background here. Nob, uh, not the greatest town name ever if you're you know, living in East Texas. That you know, guy lives in Nob. Well, here's what's going on. The tabernacle of Israel is presently at this time located in Nob, which is about a mile and a half eh, northeast of Jerusalem. The tabernacle had been located at Shiloh, but the Philistines had earlier destroyed Shiloh, and so they moved what's left of the tabernacle to Nob, just to the northeast of Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is not in the tabernacle at this point. Uh, for whatever reason, long other story, the Ark of the Covenant currently sits in this time at a place called Kiriath-Yarim, which is uh, a little outside of Jerusalem, but in a different location. So we're not real clear if the presence of God is actually here in the tabernacle or not. We just don't know. It seems as though, even though the Ark of the Covenant is not there, what we're going to find out later is that David has made a habit of going to Nob to commune with the priests, and perhaps the priests have successfully inquired to God on his behalf. So perhaps the presence of God is there. We don't know for sure. Again, the Ark of the Covenant is in a different location. But David goes to this place called Nob, to Ahimelech. Ahimelech means, my brother is king. And he's a priest, he is one of the great-grandsons of Eli, who was one of the priests uh, when Samuel comes into, into his role. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? So we see right there that apparently David has shown up before, but every time he's come before, he's shown up with a full royal entourage because he is the son-in-law of the king. And it's very strange that David shows up all by his lonesome, all by himself. And it looks like just sort of one compound question, but it's sort of two different questions. Why are you alone? Where is everybody at? See, he would have used bad grammar too. Verse two, and David said to Ahimelech the priest, yada, yada, yada. No, literally, what David's going to say, it's the Hebrew expression, almoni palmoni, it's, uh, it's yada, yada. Oh, you know, yada, 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 the thing, the thing, yada, yada, some places, some people, yada, yada. He totally just shoots from the hip. This is really one of the first times we're going to see a significant error in David's character. Oh, earlier, Saul says, I want you to go and bring me a dowry of 100 Philistines, you know, significance. And David brings back 200. That's weird. But here we're going to see a significant error in David's character. He says, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made appointment with the young men for such and such a place. I'm going to meet him at, uh, you know, yada, yada, dabarim or something. I, he just makes something up. He just, he's shooting from the hip on this deal. And he says, really? Well, okay. That sounds a little bit odd. And now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. David knows what's going on. He asks for bread. He's looking for, he is seeking provision. David knows what's going on. Every Sabbath, they would place 12 large loaves of fresh bread in the tabernacle, in the holy place, on the showbread, the table of showbread. And these 12 loaves representing God's provision 
to the 12 tribes of Israel. They would drizzle them with frankincense, a very fragrant spice. And the intent was that this porous bread would literally soak up the presence of God. And the frankincense was to sort of demonstrate that. Pure frankincense is what Leviticus talks about. And so the idea is the bread would sit there in the presence of God as he dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And after every Sabbath, the priests would remove those 12 loaves. They would eat them and replace it with fresh bread. David knows that, which means we think that he's probably showing up on the Sabbath because the, the 12 loaves from the previous week have been removed. They've just been replaced with fresh bread. Mmm, it smells like hot bread. Yes, carbohydrates. Praise God for warm-baked carbohydrates. David knows this, and so he asked for five loaves. Why five loaves? Because, you know, the five stones in the stream, and then you got to get five loaves from the... I, no, I have no idea why five loaves. Because six was too many, and four wasn't enough. And these loaves, we think, are about three and a half pounds each, and so it looks a bit weird when you're walking out with this massive wad of, you know... You go to Star Donuts, you're like, I need uh, five loaves, three and a half pounds each. That's weird. So maybe that's just as much as he could carry without looking completely strange. But he asks for five loaves. That's what's happening here in chapter 21, verse four. David is answered by the priest, verse four. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women... Clearly, uh, this is a great commentary because women are the great defiler of the humans. No, of course not. I've heard that preached before. No, 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 no. This is about consecration. How these men kept themselves from sexual immorality in service of the Lord. That's what's going on here. And David answered, oh, holy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, he's still standing there with only his shadow. There's nobody else around. Oh, yeah, yeah, the guys who weren't even with me at the tabernacle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Truly, women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. Way to go, James Bond. Uh The vessels of the young men are holy. Even when it is in an ordinary journey, how much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Just so that we understand what's happening here, this is atypical. It is not normal. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg. Dun, dun, Doeg. You should hear that in your mind when you read it. Dun, dun, Doeg. Uh, let's do it together. Let's get one, two, three. Dun, dun, Doeg. Yeah, that's going to be important later. Remember that. Verse seven, it's this weird little verse. It just happens to be sandwiched in there. He's detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. What in the world? He's a foreigner who's apparently in some way converted to Judaism. He's an Edomite, the enemies of Israel. He's a descendant of Esau. And yet he's at the tabernacle area and he's detained before the Lord. It's a guy who, it's hard for you to believe, I'm sure, but a guy who converted to God's people because it was uh, advantageous for his job. It's hard to imagine people would ever like, you know, be a part of another group of people just for their employment sake, but this is what's happening. It's 3,000 years old. This guy is a foreigner who apparently, at least in name, converts to Judaism. He is detained before the Lord because apparently the priests are going, dude, you're not even close to being ceremonially clean. You jacked up. He's a herdsman for Saul, but he's there and the priest won't let him leave. So he just happens to be watching all this. Surely that'll come back into play later. Verse eight, then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? Literally in your hand. 
for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you'll take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, very, very interesting. There's none like that. Give it to me. Now, David, by the way, knows that after he kills Goliath, just a few chapters earlier, he takes Goliath's sword to Jerusalem. He's the guy that took it there. He knows that it's there. He knows that it's there, and so he's hatched for himself a plan. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 21 and all of this is it's a challenging passage because if we're transparent, we read the text and there's just a lingering, gnawing question. This is David, the man after God's own heart. Is he lying? Is he lying? And the short answer is, yes, he's lying. You know why? Because he's a liar. Because he's just like us. I have had the greatest time reading, I don't know how many commentaries this past week, hearing how different people treat this passage. Oh, no, no, David wasn't lying. He, he's, he's doing a play on words here because Ahimelech means my brother is the king, and therefore when he says I'm on a mission of the king, uh, clearly it's a play on words, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I'm here because, no, that means absolutely no sense whatsoever. The clear meaning of the text is exactly how Samuel records it, is that he lies. Well, someone else has written, and there's, listen, there's a thousand sermons preached this way. Listen, David's being clever here. It's a double entendre. He means God the king. I'm on a secret mission for the king. You know, God, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And so he's not lying. Why, why do we try so hard to protect David this way? Here's why. It's because we really feel that our heroes have to be holy. But David is neither. He's neither hero nor particularly holy. He is, and I quote, a dude. He's a dude. This text is gonna teach us. In fact, all of the Old Testament is telling us over and over again that the best of men are men at best. <laughs> and David was awesome, y'all. This guy killed bears. He killed lions. He kills like NBA starting centers. This guy is a stallion. He's a stud and he's a loser and he's a liar. And praise God, because I am too. The very best of men are men at best. And if that's what we look to for leadership, if we place our hopes in a man alone, we will have no hope at all. So this is interesting. Is David a liar? Yes, but here's what's interesting. Samuel makes no comment. Samuel's not condoning his lying, of course not, but neither is he condemning it. He's not saying, listen, can you believe this guy? I, I told him he was gonna be the king and, and yet he didn't believe me and, and now he's lying. He doesn't say that. What's really fascinating is that Jesus himself comments on this narrative. In Matthew chapter 12, it's a familiar passage, the disciples of Jesus are walking along on the Sabbath and they're plucking grain. And the Pharisees go, bah, what are you doing? You can't pluck grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, hey, listen, David got, David got some bread from the presence when he was hungry. And the Pharisees go, whoa, he just quoted scripture on us again. That Jesus guy. What is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that human need is more crucial than ceremonial law. 
I wonder how many of us would actually sort of lose our jelly if I got a little tickle in my throat and I reached down and I took about three shots of Welch's. Would that freak any of us out? Maybe. Human need is more crucial than ceremonial law. Jesus does not condone lying, of course, but neither does Jesus, commenting on this passage, condemn David's actions. Very instructive. And I'm so grateful that this text is here. Because what David is in desperate need of is provision and protection. And despite his lies, God gives him grace. God allows this. He gives him provision by giving him bread. He gives him protection by giving him the sword. David doesn't earn it. What David earned was to be turned over in chains to King Saul. Such a great picture of grace. David didn't earn what God gave him. We never earn what God gives us. Well, there's a proverbial frying pan and then there's a proverbial fire. Join with me as we leap from one to the next. Verse 10, and David rose and he fled that day from Saul and he went to, <laughs> he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now the text is very careful to make sure we understand. He fled that day. This wasn't like six months later. David would think he's about 10, uh, 20 years old at this point. He's about 20 years old. He's gonna spend 10 years in exile before he finally becomes king. 10 years. Sometimes there is a gap between God's promise and when they come to manifestation. It's a good reminder. But he's gonna go flee from Nob and he's gonna go to Achish, the king of Gath, who, by the way, um knows how Goliath died because Goliath is from Gath. And oh, by the way, since Goliath died, the Philistine army gets routed. And by the way, it's the same day. You might remember what David has now taken from the temple. He got five loaves of bread and he's got this giant's sword dragging the earth behind him. Whose sword is that? That would be David walking into Gath, carrying Goliath's sword. This is a bad career move. This is a bad idea, but it tells us Oh my goodness, how desperate this guy must have been. How terribly desperate. The only place he can go is to his worst enemy. Well, it doesn't go well. Very quickly, things turn kind of strange. And the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? They knew who he was. Did they not sing to honor of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They even knew the one hit wonder. This is the dude who killed all of us. My cousin Sal, dead because of him. My nephew, Maury, dead because of him. Look at the big sword. He cut off our champion's head with that. What's he doing here? They, they, they sing songs that he killed 10,000 of us. You know how desperate you have to be to walk into town like that? Did they not sing to one another that Saul struck down his thousands, David his 10,000? And David took these words to heart, you think, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors at the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. <laughs> you had days like this, by the way? I call it staff meeting. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? And then one of the funniest verses, I think, in this whole David narrative is in verse 15. Do I lack madmen? Like, are you for real kidding me with this? I got madmen all over the place. I got crazies by the bushel loads. Why are you bringing me another one? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? So this fellow come into my house? Enough with the crazy people. You've been there. I call that Thanksgiving. Listen. 
David shows up and he's not a fool. He's not an idiot. He knows the drill. He knows that Philistine mythology says that the mentally insane have been touched by the gods. And therefore, their derangement is because the gods are communing with them and they are not to be touched or bothered. This is David's last gasp of, of trying to protect himself. He pretends to be completely insane. He's making marks on the door. The word is there. He's writing something. I don't know what he's writing on the door, but it's not just claw marks. It, there seems to be in that word some intelligible writing. I don't know what it is, but I've heard a lot of people make really awful commentaries about David's character for doing this. I just want to know, what would you do? You know how desperate you are if you have to go to the heart of your enemy's camp because you get no comfort, no solace from anyone that is supposed to be close to you? Samuel is sort of writing the uh, play-by-play the -play commentary on all this, but David himself gets to provide sort of the color commentary on what's going on. Listen to what David writes while he is in Gath of the Philistines. We, fortunately, by God's provision and grace, we have a couple psalms that David actually writes while he's in Gath with goo on his beard. Psalm 56 is written, while David is in Gath. Psalm 34 is written while David is reflecting on his time in Gath. This is what he says in Psalm 56, verses eight to 11. You have kept count of my tossings, my thrashings about. Put my tears in your bottle. Does God care? Look at the clarity with which David is writing. Maybe he's even writing it on the gates of the doors of Gath. My God has captured my tears in a bottle. Does God care? Yeah. And David is as clear and as sane as he can be. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. <laughs> this is such a profound moment where he's at the end of his rope and yet he says, this one thing I know, God is for me which the Apostle Paul will pick up in Romans chapter eight and say, you know it, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is quoting David. It's one thing I know, God cares. I may have forgotten everything else, I may have been left by everybody, but this one thing I know, God cares. God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Says the guy who is cray-cray at the gate, clawing the gate. And yet he's going perfectly clear. What's going on here? Why? Why, Why is David doing this? Because David lives 3,000 years ago. It's easy for us to sit here in the 21st century in Western civilization and go, that's not what you should do. Really? You've been to Philistia 3,000 years ago, having just killed their champion? And yet he's completely aware that God cares. Verse, or chapter, Psalm 34, verses 19 to 22. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. It's astonishing. It takes your breath away. You realize David is prophesying the ultimate anointed one that will come. And when is he experiencing this? In the midst of his greatest calamity and turmoil, hiding in broad daylight amongst his enemy. He's looking forward to the concern and the care that God has. He will not allow any of his bones to be broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. 
In the midst of this dilemma, David remembers that he is beloved. His predicament is preparing us for one that will come later. Well, very quickly, just the opening portion here of chapter 22. Things don't go well in Philistia. They rarely do. And so David has to leave again. Chapter 22, verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. He goes to a hole in the ground because, you know, there ain't no place like a hole in the ground. He finds these caves of Adullam, which are in the Shephelah region west of Jerusalem. But these caves of Adullam are more like underground cities. They're carved out in the limestone and hundreds and hundreds of people could live in there in perpetuity. And you can visit them today and they had entire like commercial centers happening in these caves. But his back's up against the wall. He's in the cave. There's nowhere for him to go. And I have to imagine as he sits at the mouth of the cave looking out, wondering if this is his last day, he sees all of these figures on the horizon approaching. And he thinks that's it. Guy finally got me. Saul's finally got me. And when finally he notices, it's not Saul and his henchmen. It's his mom and his dad. They're aging. And it's his brothers. It's his family. Can you imagine the joy the release, the exhilaration, the relief of seeing family. Friends, as a pastor, that's my prayer for Sundays. That we walk into this place and we see amongst one another family that are a joy, a respite, a hurt, a hurt, no, a help, an inconvenience, no, a joy, a release, a refuge. This is how David receives his family. And not only them, but listen to all who comes and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. All these ragtag folks, and we'll find out later, there's all these Jews who were disgruntled with the system and all these Gentiles who are down and out will all gather to the Lord's anointed. Hmm, that's interesting. And he became commander, captain, champion over them. And they were with them, about 400 men. And then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet of Gad, the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. David takes his family. He's encouraged, he's re-energized. All this band of merry men have gathered to him now. He's got to deal with his family. So he takes them across national boundaries, takes them to Moab, the enemy of Israel. Why? We're not told exactly, but there's a sense here that David is going back to his family ties. His great-grandmother is Ruth, the Moabitess. Never would he have imagined, never would Ruth have imagined that one day in three generations, the king of Israel was going to deposit his family in Moab for safekeeping. God seemingly knows everything and has a plan. David finds himself coming out of this cave, and he'll comment on his cave experience later in Psalm 142, verses five to seven. He says of his time in the cave, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And as he's writing those words, God delivers by sending his family and all this cast of unusual suspects. Why? Because God cares. 
He's joined by all these people. It's not what he expects or not how he expects God to answer his prayer, but God does. Well, 22 through the end of the chapter is a very, very strange passage from verse 6 to the end of the chapter. King Saul finds out that David's back and that he's on the run. And uh, there's a spy. This guy, dun-dun-doeg, shows up and says, hey, I know where David is. He was inquiring of the priests in Nob. And Saul has an all-out freakout. Totally consumed by paranoia and fear. His only option, his only recourse, all he can think of is to kill everybody. Why have you helped David, my enemy, he asks the priest. The priest says, what are you talking about? I don't know. He said he was from you. He's the son-in-law of you, the king. He comes here all the time and inquires of the Lord, and I help him. What are you talking about? Don't, Don't misunderstand. And Saul says to his servant, kill all the priests. And the servant of Saul says, are you kidding? I'm not gonna do that. But dun-dun-dun, Doeg does. He shows back up. He says, I'll do it. Takes a sword and he kills 85 priests and their families and their livestock. Now, people have said, well, that's because David lied. No, the text does not make that comment. That would have happened whether David lied or not. That meeting with, with Ahimelech, that was gonna cause this horrible eventuality one way or the other. But one guy escapes, this guy named Abiathar, also called Ahijah. And what we're gonna find out later is he goes to David. David swears to protect him and he will become the high priest during David's kingship. Whew, that is a lot of narrative text to go through. What in the world is this doing here? What can we possibly learn from this other than, as I've already mentioned, that God cares? It's important to remember, this is not a bunch of fables or morals. It's preparing us for God's ultimate and most excellent anointed. Now remember, We have wisdom on this side of the cross that David did not have. But what we can learn from this, knowing what we know about the coming of Christ, is a whole bunch that is meant to encourage us and to remind us just how much God cares. So I'm just gonna hit these application points, these implication points, very quickly. Number one, Jesus is a prince worth abdicating to. He's a prince worth abdicating to. It's not like David. He's more David than David. He really is holy all the time, even in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of loneliness and sorrow and fear, praying, God, my God, let this cup pass. He is the worthy one, the righteous one. He is the one we bring all of our supposed entitlements to and we willingly hand them over. We abdicate the small throne of our life because his is better. We are woefully unqualified to be the steward of our own life. And so we ask him to be our Lord and our Savior. That's number one, a prince worth abdicating to. Number two, Jesus is a priest who perfectly represents us to God. Ahimelech was a priest who was representing David before God, but Ahimelech was duped. He unwittingly gave his life for David. And he was tricked into doing so. But Jesus, the better, the greater, the grander high priest, knows that I'm a liar and innocently and knowingly chooses to give his life as a ransom for me and for many. He's a much better high priest. He represents us as a people perfectly to God. Number three, Jesus is provision from God. 
The observant and clever will, among you will notice that these all have a P in them. Kind of proud of that, so stick with me. Jesus is the provision from God. The bread of the presence was before God, and it was to soak up his presence. And then the priests would take that presence literally into themselves. And Jesus says to his disciples, don't you get it? I have been with the Father. You've been with me. You've been with him. And a little bit later, we're going to have communion together, and we'll recognize that we, in a very real sense, get to experience symbolically the taking in the finished work of Christ into our bodies. Jesus is the provision from God. Not only that, Jesus, number four, is protection in the power of God. Jesus himself is the protection in the power of God. David goes and he asks for the sword of Goliath. Why? Because it is the weapon of mass destruction that Goliath, the enemy of Israel, was going to use against the people. But God takes that weapon and uses it against him himself. The weapon of mass destruction that our enemy has is our own sin and death. And a better David says, there's none like it. Give it to me. And he willingly takes up his cross. The weapon of mass destruction that the enemy will use, he uses to defeat sin and death himself. Fifth point. This one does not have a P despite all my best efforts. I'm so sorry. I tried. But Jesus is a captain that unites his cave-dwelling people. <laughs> all of those who come to him, the ragtag, the least, the lost, the losers, maybe even the left, all come to him, both Jew and Gentile, united as one people on behalf of the kingdom. And they follow him out of a cave. <laughs> not just running in exile, but Jesus, the better David, sealed up in a cave three days, emerges victorious and brings with him a people united in his finished work. This is the story of the Lord's anointed. Does God care? Look at the extent to which he has gone. Now we're gonna get to experience and celebrate just one of these facets very quickly. The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. I'm gonna invite those who will serve, if you would please come forward. We're gonna have Lord's Supper here. And I want you to know that if you are a believer, you are invited to take part in communion. You do not have to be a member of Bethel. But we would ask you and invite you to treat this somberly and solemnly and yet with great joy. It is a demonstration of the finished work of Jesus. We are to proclaim his death until he comes again because he is alive. So if you're not a believer, if you're not sure about this, or if there is some reason that you are out of fellowship with the Lord or with somebody else, we're gonna ask you to just allow the elements to pass. Please hold on to those elements. Till the end, we'll all take them together. And I'm gonna pray for us and ask that the Lord be honored and then we'll distribute these elements and then we'll take them together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. As we receive grace, Father, may we also pass it to one another. And may you be honored. We pray this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.